Welcome to the 459th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Deborah Amos, NPR Middle East correspondent and journalism professor at Princeton University. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest, but don't wait too long. We're wrapping up the regular COVID calls next week on March 16th. As of March 9th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, Iraq reports 25,076 people have died from COVID-19. Lebanon reports 10,169. And Syria reports 3,102 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is the Reverend Eduardo Tamer, who ministered to Syrians in war, dies at 83. This was written by Ben Hubbard, appeared in the New York Times, October 6, 2020. Headline Beirut. As fighting in the civil war in Syria tore through neighborhoods in the city of Aleppo, the Roman Catholic authorities offered the Reverend Eduardo Tamer, a Franciscan friar who had lived in a monastery there for many years, a chance to get out for his own safety. He declined. He said, I will live here and I will die here if that is what happens, said the Reverend Firas Lutfi, the Franciscan regional minister for Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. He decided to stay in Aleppo during this very critical situation. Father Tamer survived the war but fell sick with COVID-19 in the summer of 2020 and died of the disease in Aleppo on August 12, 2020. He was 83. Father Tamer spent most of his life in the Franciscan order, serving as an educator, translator, and minister to Catholic communities in Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, the Palestinian territories, and finally Syria. He was born Romanos Tamer on May 5, 1937 in the village of Sir El Danya in northern Lebanon, where his father, Boutros Temer, had a shop and a workshop that made wooden boxes for fruit. His mother, Kamle Fayad, helped her husband with the business. Father Temer, a Maronite Catholic, set his sights on the religious life in childhood. He was convinced that he was called from God to be a friar and specifically a Franciscan, Father Lutfi said. Father Temer began his monastic calling in 1956 as a 19-year-old novice in the Friary of St. Catherine in Bethlehem in the West Bank, taking the name Eduardo. Three years later, he took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and joining the Order of Friars Minor founded by St. Francis of Assisi in the early 13th century. That committed him to a life of simplicity and itinerant service, often to the poor, a commitment represented by the simple brown robe and rope belt worn by the friars, he was ordained a priest in Jerusalem in 1965 and earned a license in theology three years later at St. Joseph University in Beirut. Over the next four decades, he held positions in schools, colleges, and parishes, including those in Harissa, 
Amman, Latakia, Alexandria, and Jericho, the West Bank. The survivors include two brothers, Joseph and Antun. Father Tamer was transferred to the monastery of St. Anthony of Padua in Aleppo, Syria's largest city in 2007. It was where he would remain, serving for periods as the superior and the director of the parish recreation center. Father Lutfi recalled that Father Tamer liked to hear confession in order to give people hope and peace. He was skilled at translating religious texts from Italian into Arabic, most notably The Mind's Road to God, a medieval treatise on spirituality by St. Bonaventure. A civil war in Syria broke out in 2011, leading to a bombing campaign by the Syrian government and its Russian allies against armed rebels that destroyed entire neighborhoods in Aleppo. The city's Christians, long a small minority and divided among different sects, immigrated in large numbers during the war. Estimates of the number of remaining Catholics are in the thousands. Father Tamer insisted on remaining, celebrating mass, welcoming visitors, and at times taking in people seeking refuge from the fighting. It was his decision to stay and continue his service despite the bombardment and the war and disease, Father Lutfi said. It was his mission to be beside people who suffer. The obituary of the Reverend Eduardo Tamer, who died in Aleppo in the summer of 2020 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Deborah Amos is an award-winning international correspondent for National Public Radio News, which regularly features her groundbreaking reporting on the Middle East and refugees in the United States on Morning Edition, Weekend Edition, and All Things Considered. Amos previously reported for ABC's Nightline and PBS's Frontline, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She's the author of two books, Eclipse of the Sunnis, Power, Exile, and Upheaval in the Middle East, which appeared with Public Affairs in 2010, and Lines in the Sand, Desert Storm and the Remaking of the Arab World, which appeared with Simon & Schuster in 1992. She's won several major journalism honors, including the Courage in Journalism Award from the International Women's Media Foundation, George Foster Peabody Award, Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award, and an Emmy. And she was part of a team of reporters who won a 2004 Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award for coverage of Iraq. She's presently a fellow of the American Academy in Berlin, and I'm really glad to welcome Deborah Amos to COVID Calls. Thanks for joining me. Much. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're coming from, where you're calling from, and how the uh, pandemic situation is looking there today. So I'm in Wannsee, um, which is a beautiful town um, outside of Berlin. Um, I can see a lovely lake where um, uh, I am. Um, COVID here, you know, we are still wearing masks. We are still, um, and because this is Germany, it is very, very, very uh, organized. You know, I have, uh, every time I walk into a, a, a restaurant, I have to show my COVID pass and my passport. I made a trip to London last weekend and it was like night and day, uh, no masks, no nothing. Uh, nobody checked on the way into the country. Nobody checked on the way out. And so you can see that, you know, different places uh, are taking uh, different paths. Um, I wore a mask in, in London because I felt like you're supposed to, and I felt better doing it. 
so um, here I feel more comfortable because it seems like people are, are paying lots of attention and I'm happy about that. Just in terms of the institutions you've been interacting with there in, in Berlin, masks, indoors, vaccination, these are not things people even discuss. It's just part of the culture. It's certainly the same here in South Korea. Is that what you're observing there? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, nobody fusses. It's easy to do. In fact, I was with someone last night who was telling me that her phone died at an airport and it completely freaked her out because she didn't know how she was going to be able to show her her COVID um code in her phone and went to a local uh, pharmacy here. And for nine euros, you can have it in a little card that you can just put in your pocket. So just in case your phone dies, uh, you can have your code. And I thought that's so very German and I'm going to go get one of those. That's very smart. I, I appreciated your story of your trip to London. It's almost like just going back to the US, pretty much the same from what I hear. Pretty much. They just de declared COVID over. And of course we know it's not. Uh, so I did what I thought was safe, um, and was happy to wear my mask. No one gives you any looks when you do it, as opposed to the United States where people do now. Um, you know, they, they, the anti-maskers, uh, will, you know, give you trouble, not in the Northeast, certainly not where I lived in, in Brooklyn. Um, but I, I know that that does happen in the States, not, not in London. It's your choice. Well, I've been asking guests if they would share a, a personal memory of the pandemic. It's kind of an impossible question, given so many things that we've been through. But I, I wonder, is there a memory that really stands in for you of this time? You know, when you read the obit of the priest in Aleppo, um, I was going to share this anecdote anyway, and it just makes it more relevant. When the, the notices of the pandemic began, I was in Beirut. I was in Beirut in January and February of 2020. And when I left, there were seven cases. So it is startling to listen to your numbers of where we are now. Uh, I don't believe the Syrian numbers. I think they're much higher. Um, and I had to fly back to the United States at the end of February. And I called a friend of mine, Laurie Garrett, who is a, you know, award-winning, brilliant science correspondent. And I would say, what do I do? You know, can I deal with this? And she said, yes go find yourself a mask. And if you can't find any gloves, get leather ones. Don't eat anything on the plane. Don't take your tray down. Um, and you'll be fine. And of course she was right. But by the time I got back to New York, I knew what was coming because she told me what was coming. Uh, she wrote a whole book about what was coming. Yeah. So I was prepared, but I would see friends. I went to see a friend of mine who had a new baby and I, I didn't want to touch that child because I'd come from Lebanon where there were cases. And she thought I was acting weird. And six months later, she wrote me and she said, you knew. I said, yes, I did know. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what was coming. Um, and I was behaving accordingly. And then, you know, the rest of the society kind of caught up to where I was. It's amazing that you got personalized pandemic advice from Lori Garrett. I had Lori on uh, episode 100 uh, of COVID calls back in the summer of, of 2020. And then the, her fresh memories of that time were still of what people were about to experience in New York, the sirens and the beating of pots and pans for the healthcare workers. It seems to have now with this discussion of endemicity and the pandemic somehow being over and masks coming off the United States, it seems like a, a distant world at this point to me. 
The problem is it's not, of course. And I still read, you know, almost everything I can about COVID and Ukraine. Um, I, in the fall, I had a roommate who had long-term COVID. So I saw it every day. And, you know, my refrigerator was filled up with cartons of yogurt and maple syrup because she could only taste two things, uh, extreme salt and extreme sugar. And I have been reading um, of, you know, brain difficulties for people who have long-term COVID. And so the more we know about long-term COVID, the more you think that's, I don't want to have that. I, you know, I, that's the danger of, um, even if the numbers are small, the danger is still large for, for people who, who contract it. And you still hear anecdotes about people who are vaxxed and have a pretty bad case of it. There may be some genetic reason for that. I think those are all science questions that have yet to be answered about why some people have such a rough time with COVID. Um, and so I find myself being, being you know, relatively careful, even, even today. Let me remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to NPR Middle East correspondent and journalism professor Deborah Amos. And you said something you anticipated what was going to be one of my first questions about Syria, which is the, the numbers. And I actually had a, uh, a journalist on yesterday, David Adam, who'd written a piece recently for Nature about the undercount problem and and the various ways that different news organizations and health organizations are trying to model to get a better count. But I wanted to go a little further with you on this issue of the count in Syria. You said you don't trust the numbers. I mean, my initial question is why, but also what does it mean to have such a low number of COVID deaths coming from Syria? How do we even come to know that number from them? Um, I think they have to publish something. They can't say zero. Uh, because that is even more fanciful. But, you know, it's like election returns, 99.1%. Uh, so these are countries that are used to fudging their numbers. Um, it is. It used to be a very, very good health system. But, you know, this is a country under sanctions um, that uh, is in a war that is still not over. Um, I think the more remarkable thing to, to know about Syria is to look at the numbers in Idlib, which are relatively low. And if you look at how people are living, they're intense, cheek by jowl. It's kind of extraordinary. However, these are young populations um, and and nobody really can count uh, in Idlib. But I think we would know if there was a raging uh, epidemic that was killing people throughout. And that is not happening. And you see in other places that this is also the case. And it has to do with the age of the population, um, how isolated they are from people who could bring in, um, you know, uh, contagion. And I think uh, Idlib has been cut off from the outside world, so it's its own world. Um, and that may explain why those numbers are low. Syria is not the same. I mean, they have a porous border with Lebanon. And I just think it is in their DNA not to give um, uh, accurate numbers. You know, that that gets intertwined with the problem of counting war deaths and refugee numbers too. I mean, as a journalist, though, your your mandate is to try to give us the facts, and I wanted to sort of ask you. We're going to talk about your reporting, but I mean, even just this issue of numbers. If you you know ask the um, Syrian authorities to give you a number and they give you back an answer like that, what's what's your recourse as a journalist? So look, my my rule of thumb is don't report numbers because numbers are emotional. Um, you know, one of my first 
uh, assignments was in 1982, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And if you ask any Palestinian officials how many died, they tell you a million because that was an, that's how they felt. Um, and you learn from that moment on um, to just watch out for numbers. Um, they give you some sign of what authorities think is saleable, um, or they give you some sign of uh, things that you didn't think about. I, I will give you uh, an example. Yes, Ukraine is horrible, and what is happening there is unconscionable, but the numbers are still relatively low. And so you ask yourself, what is going on there? Um, and I, I can't answer that question because I can see the destruction on my Twitter feed. But yet uh, the numbers are relatively low for 13 days into a conflict that looks the way it does. So it just raises a lot of questions about there is so much that we don't know about what is happening in Ukraine, partly because journalists can't come out of bomb shelters just like the civilians can't. Um, and so I think we are losing a lot of information inside that country to answer the question, to explain those numbers. I appreciate that rule of thumb. It's been a challenging one during COVID, though, because we have you know, yeah. the desire to I mean, those, those numbers at one level are supposed to be a roadmap to where we're supposed to surge healthcare workers and, and material. Um, but on the other hand, we know it's an undercount even in the United States and in Brazil and in India. So you're kind of left wondering, well, what really is the, the scale of this? And I guess people thought, I'm going to editorialize here for a second. People, I think I certainly thought coming into the pandemic that the United States sort of health system was such that you would always have a more or less good count. And then the president of the United States called for basically stop counting in the summer of 2020. Things would look a lot better if we stopped testing, which is a way of saying stop counting. I was brought up pretty short by that. But that is true. And as more and more of us self-test, those numbers aren't reported anywhere. So if you self-test and you're uh, in good enough shape to not go to the hospital, that particular event won't be recorded in the general um, you know, numbers of the United States. So if if we aren't giving uh, precise numbers, then it's no surprise that the rest of the world is having trouble with this. So I want to find out what you're working on there in Berlin. It's pretty fascinating. And I, I want to I know people are going to want to hear all about it. And it has to do with the Syrian accountability trial there in in. I want to come to that in just a second, but first I want to ask you just about the status of Syrian refugees in Germany right now. I mean, the numbers are, are I had forgotten, I guess, a million refugees in Europe and the lion's share of them in Germany. Maybe they've been distributed further since the last reporting. What's the situation there? So there's about 800,000 Syrians here. Uh, what's, you know, they came in 2015. Um, what's interesting is some of them have now become German citizens. Um, you know, many of them have learned German. Uh, they are working for uh, German enterprises here. Um, most of them know that they cannot go home. Uh, some of the activists uh, from Damascus got special immigrant visas. You know, sometimes I think that the Syrian elite is like the Elgin marbles, you know, that, that, that uh, Germany brought them to save them uh, because many of them would have been killed had they stayed in, in Damascus. And, you know, they organize under a couple of in a couple of different ways. Some of them are 
teaching uh, justice courses to uh, young Syrians here um, based on the war crimes trials that have, have you know, one of the big ones just concluded. Um, but Ukraine, in some ways, has um, been on a lot of Syrians' minds because they feel like they were the test case for the Russians. Um, you know, Russians bombed Syrian hospitals, they bombed Syrian schools, they bombed Syrian markets, and the world tut-tutted, but didn't really do much. Um, there was no accountability for what happened in Syria. And so they say, look, we, we know this. Um, we live this. And there are Syrians who are on the Ukrainian border. It's not hard to get to from here. Um, there are Ukraine, uh, Syrians who have spoken at the demonstrations here in Berlin. Uh, you can see that they talk about it a lot on, on mm. Facebook. So I came here. My project was... Um, is, Syrian account is the road to Syrian accountability run through Germany, question mark. Um, and so there's been a bit of a pivot for me because Ukraine is now part of my project. Right. I, well, I'm glad you're doing... I'm glad you're doing this project. I, I, and just to ask a little bit more about the, the sort of nature of the discourse among Syrians about Ukraine. Is there an anger there or is that just not useful emotion? And so they're, they're channeling more about networks of of solidarity and discussing their own experience on how to understand what Russia is going to do next. It's hard for me to understand how these Syrians refugees, I know they've built community quite quickly, but it must still be incredibly raw and disrupted. Well, I think two things. One is the international solidarity with Ukraine. It's like, wait, what about us? How come, you know, why didn't that happen? And two, there have been reporters, I think people have stopped doing it, but in the beginning, People would say things like, you know, this is a civilized country um, and and yet there's refugees. And the Syrians said, wait, so are we. You know, we had nice cars and we had dishwashers and we were civilized. You just didn't know about us. And that has been painful. Um, and you see a lot of pushback on that. Uh, and that's been terribly unfortunate um, that... And, and I think that the reporters who say things like that are just incredibly misinformed um, about who the Syrians are. Um, and so I do see a lot of pushback with that. So tell me about the Syrian accountability trial. And I'm particularly interested in sort of the theory of justice that this relies upon. It's a quite unique sort of endeavor. Yes. Universal jurisdiction is a very interesting um, part of the law. And it's something that a legislature decides. So the German legislature decided in 2002 that they would have universal jurisdiction. And essentially what it says is that some crimes are so heinous that uh, a national court can take them up, even if neither side has what in American jurisprudence is called standing. And so even if the perpetrator is not a German citizen and the victim isn't either, two people show up in Germany. Um, you know, one is a torturer and one is a victim. Um, under American law, it would be very difficult to bring that case to court because neither has standing. In Germany, you can do that. Um, France has a, a similar statute. So does Spain. Um, so does Sweden. So does Austria. Um, and the Germans passed this in 2002. They didn't do much with it. It was in solidarity with the International Criminal Court. And there were a couple of cases that they would do, but in 2011, uh, the German prosecutor began what's called a structural investigation. 
And they are duty bound to do that when a German citizen is somehow um, caught up in things that were happening in Syria. And that was the case. So they began an investigation. It gets turbocharged, so to speak, in 2014 when Syrians begin to arrive. And in particular, two lawyers, two Syrian human rights lawyers arrive uh, as refugees and they understand the law. They are known to um, German lawyers and they begin to work together to bring these cases. They can find uh, Syrian victims, they can find witnesses, they can talk the witnesses into you know, going to court. It, it took some time to put this case together. Um, but in 2019, there were two men, two Syrians who had worked in the Syrian prison system and they were arrested. And in Janu on January 13th, uh, the, the uh, former colonel, uh, a man named Anwar Aslan, was found guilty of crimes against humanity, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and despite uh, the Syrian regime threatening witnesses um, and trying to interfere with the proceedings, that trial uh, was, was, was done. And I think that there was some sense here in Germany that this was the first successful prosecution. It showed proof of concept. It showed it could be done. What is very interesting is the German prosecutor yesterday announced that they were doing a structural investigation in Ukraine. Oh. And so I think that that, um, that move comes because of the success uh, in the courtroom in Koblenz, uh, which is where um, the trial uh, took place. What's the advantage of doing it in Germany versus letting it run through The Hague? Because um, there is political paralysis in The Hague. So uh, that has to be done through the UN Security Council and the Chinese and the Russians have a veto and they have vetoed every um, attempt to bring Syria to account. So, at, and they would do the same uh, to try to bring um, the Russians to account. Uh, perhaps the ICC can be a venue and, and there are people who are proposing um, you know, to investigate the war of aggression, the crime of the uh, a war of aggression at the ICC. But the ICC is a, a quite a controversial um, uh, institution. Uh, the Americans don't like it. Um, the Trump administration hated it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but, but the downside is this, you cannot uh, prosecute a head of state in a national court. And so if some of these courts, uh, if these cases are pursued in Germany, you could say perhaps do a tank commander or um, whoever ordered that tank column to fire on a, uh, on a residential building, but you cannot uh, take uh, Vladimir Putin um, to court in, in Germany or Sweden or France or anywhere else in a national court. You know, it's a fascinating set of interlocking legal problems there, but I'm also curious about the evidentiary sort of standards of this and, you know, the 
Um, I was really taken with, um, I don't know if you follow the art of Ai Weiwei, the um, Chinese artist who has documented and continues to document the plight of the Syrian refugees. And he made the case, it, it, he had an exhibit there in Berlin when I was there at the, at the State Opera Hall of uh, life jackets. And the life jackets that. were, you remember that? And so uh, it, was, it was really powerful and it was a form of evidence. I mean, basically he had a, you know, an estimate of number of people who had drowned and then turned that into art. And, it, and so that's one way to provide some evidence, but what's being introduced in the courtroom that you're talking about must be something more akin to what you'd find in a murder trial, I guess, in, the, in a U.S. Correct. courtroom. Correct. These are criminal proceedings. And so, um, you know, the bar is quite high for evidence. So you had more than 50 witnesses. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 witnesses. Um, and that was just, uh, you know, people who had been through um, the, the, you know, the, the torture regime, which was on an industrial scale. I was in the courtroom when an older gentleman um, testified and the defendant was in the courtroom, the man who was responsible for, you know, his pain. And he had a breakdown after he testified that he knew um, Anwar Raslan. I mean, they are, they are within spitting distance of each other in the courtroom. It was incredibly powerful. And it was early in the uprising. His wife and his daughter had gone to a protest for milk for the children of a town called Dara near the, uh, in the, the southern part of Syria. It's near Jordan. And essentially, Raslan had said to him, you should have known better. And he ordered extra uh, electric shock for him. And this is what he was telling the court. And he all of a sudden had a breakdown and had to leave. So these are the, and I have just heard in the past day or two that the judges were, were given um, uh, some sort of psychological training. So, because they had to hear these stories for two years on the stand um, and they needed help as often NGO uh, workers do, uh, that you know, when you take on all of these stories, um, you also can be affected. But let me point this out, that when the trial opened, um, the indictment uh, said 4,000 cases of torture, and we started with something like 38 cases of death. By the end of the trial, they brought that number down to 28 because uh, the bar of evidence only allowed them to say, we can say with certainty that 28 people died, not 38. So that was an interesting thing mm. for me to watch that number. You know, there, there are five federal judges. Uh, there, it is not a jury trial. Um, and so that, that is how they felt about what they could actually um, say at the end of, of the trial. So, you know, they were very mindful of, of evidence, very mindful. And what is the relief that will be available if there's a, if there's a conviction? Well, there has been, um, this was a crimes against humanity. Um, and you know, 15 years, uh, this is the German system where you come up for parole in 15 years. Doesn't mean that he will get it. But he, I mean, look what you what you witness in in this case is the limits of of justice. Um, the the you had a perpetrator, 
uh, he was in Germany, so you could bring him to trial. You had witnesses of that particular branch. There are plenty of Syrians in Germany who were tortured in other branches. They will not go to court because there is no uh, there's no perpetrator to try. Um, for those who testified, many of them said it was a relief. They did not feel like a victim anymore. They felt like they were doing something. Their families felt the same. But that feeling does not, you know, help those who did not testify. Uh, and so you do see the limits. I mean, as somebody said to me, you know, it's like catching drops of rain as the storm rages. These things are still happening in Syria and everybody knows that. And it, it, it hasn't stopped any of uh, the torture that is happening in, in Syrian mm. prisons. So there's a, there is a limit to this. There always is a limit to international accountability. I mean, let's, I mean, let's look at the history here. Nuremberg happens after the war. And um, sure. you can say the same thing for the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. You know, um, we don't have some of those trials to 13 years after the war ends. In right. Syria, the war is still going on. So that is also um, a bit problematic. But what you do get is for the first time, the victims of a war rather than the winners get to write the narrative. That it, it is now the truth as as determined by a German court. Uh, you know, if you are growing up in a refugee camp 20 years from now and you want to know why this happened to you, there is something that you can go and, and read um, in, 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 in Germany about what happened in Syria. It's not a debate anymore about is there torture in Syria or is there not? A court has said, yes, there is. What's the role of journalists there and, and your role particularly? I mean, the, there are decisions that will be made in the courtroom, but then there's the sort of broader court of public opinion and the role of, of documentation, uh, which, as you point out just now, can have a very long impact over time. So how do you see your own, your own role in this? So all of us ask these questions because, and especially as an American, it takes a while to get used to the German criminal law system. Here's yeah. one thing. They don't they don't release transcripts. Um, and it took um, a court uh, order to get them to translate it into Arabic for the participants. Really? Uh, yeah, it took a while to do that. And so um, many organizations sent court reporters to um, to take down what happened every day. And you could read it on, for example, uh, the European Commission for Constitutional Human Rights here in Berlin, they put out a daily, um, you know, uh, 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 piece of, of literature on their website about here's what a, a witness said. Here's what the witnesses said. You know, there were six who, who testified on the last day. And, and you could read all of these things on a website, but that's because organizations cared enough to send court reporters to do that. And it, I think that it was a missed opportunity for uh, the German judicial system to put these things out in Arabic, because then you, you had to ask yourself, who's this trial for um, at the end of the day? There's a new trial that is open. It's going on now in Frankfurt. And for the first time now, there is an Arabic language podcast um, mm. that is out on the web that will allow Syrians, if they wish, to listen to this 
you know, surreptitiously in Damascus if they want to know what's happening with that trial. But look, everybody's learning. Everybody, this is all quite new on on how you do this. So um, it's interesting to see how people are adapting. There was an English language podcast for the trial in Koblenz. It was called Branch 251. Hmm. Um, And they are moving to also do the case in Frankfurt. So, you know, it's social media that Mm -hmm. is filling in the gaps. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. And I'm talking today to Deborah Amos, who's a national public radio Middle East correspondent and professor of journalism at Princeton University. We've talked a little about Ukraine. I'd like to come back to that. And sort of, I guess, one basic question is, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Who knows that? I, I mean, we talk about it every day. I'm, I'm, I have 14 fellows with me, and that's breakfast conversation. What's going to happen? Um, you tell me. Look, I mean, here you feel it acutely. I went last week to the Berlin Central Station to just observe people coming in. And... Um, it was incredibly well organized because all of the organizations for the Syrian refugees of 2015, everybody just got up and said, oh, yes, I remember how we did this last time. We're going to do that again. Um, and you, Germans are, are taking in Ukrainians. I talked to a photographer. He said, I'm taking in a pregnant woman from Ukraine. I thought, oh, great. Um, some of the staff here are, are taking in families. Um, you can see them at the train stations with signs that say, I have a room, you can come. Uh, people were arriving with their dogs, you know, with their kids looking, oh God, looking just frazzled um, because I am in contact with now with some of the organizations that do PTSD counseling and torture counseling all of a sudden, they have Ukrainian clients who are knocking on their doors, people are, are who are traumatized as they arrive in Germany. And Germany's not getting the bulk of these refugees yet. It's still Poland, Hungary. It's just the, it's the border countries right, right. that are now. It's, we're up to 2 million, 2 million people. Um, it's, it's just extraordinary, you know, what's happening. Um I'm in touch with a woman I talk to every day to see if she's okay. Um, And she's in Kharkiv, 23-year-old web designer who is designing web pages for startup companies in California. And a friend put us in touch. She still works. She goes up to her apartment, uh, downloads what she needs. Uh, goes to the uh, the shelter. Her town is being bombed every morning. She said, no, it's sunny. I'm staying. It's fine. Um, so, you know, uh, we all think, should we buy iodine tablets? You know, will, will there be a nuclear consequence to all of this? Um, it's very close. I must say it's much different than it would have been had I still been back in, in the United States. Is your impulse to go? No, I mean, I have a fellowship and, and, um, so no, uh, and to just go, no one just goes, you, right. you go with a purpose. So, of course. you know, we'll see what happens when I go back to work. Um, but I, I'm obsessed with it. I read Twitter yeah. all day. I listen to, you know, the radio all day to see what's happening. Um, it's impossible not to, um, I went to see a demonstration, um, on Sunday, which was, in a place called Babelplatz, where the Nazis burned books. And here you had thousands of people um, wrapped in Ukraine flags and a, you know, a feed from Ukraine. What, what is astonishing is 
in the middle of this, I mean, this happened in Syria as well, but you know, this is a TikTok war. So people still have, even in Kharkiv, I am able to talk to a woman there. I can call her if I want and her line is perfect. Um, you know, the internet is still up in many of these places. And so I, I hear interviews with people on trains. I hear people uh, doing interviews in bomb shelters. A little girl sings, you know, let it go from, from right. uh, a frozen and the whole world sees it. You know, it's just extraordinary what is happening um, and how we can all see what is happening, but still really don't understand what's happening. I have to say that. And it, 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 I mean, to come back to the what we were talking about before about the war crimes. So we we are we do feel connected, as you say. I mean, I had a conversation with a American historian who had been writing his dissertation in Kiev, and now he's he's fled to Warsaw. He's like didn't get all of his documents, so he's in trying to figure out what to do next. And he's there in Poland. Then we had a conversation just before I talked to you. And we have this sort of sense of connectivity, but to some of the more pressing issues, I'm concerned about you know what's happened with COVID there in the middle of a war, but then also the war crimes, which you, I mean, sometimes with this video you see, but you don't really understand what you're, what Correct. you're seeing. I, I, I don't retweet um, videos unless maybe the New York Times does it. I'm very careful about it because I think, you know, you, I saw this in Syria, all of a sudden you'd see something from Mexico and you didn't realize it for a while and it's, wait a minute, who did that? I mean, there's so much disinformation. Mm -hmm that you know one must tread very very carefully i will give you an example that has been on my mind for a while so i talked to this woman in kharkiv uh, she is in a bomb shelter at night and uh, you know goes to her apartment in the daytime but then i read kharkiv is being flattened so why can she still talk to me and why isn't she leaving i don't say that uh because it's not my place to i see pictures of the kharkiv train station where there are thousands of people trying to get out and she's not. So why? But I, I feel like I, I don't want to really ask her that. I don't want to, it's not my place, to, but I, I think about it in the daytime. Like what don't I understand about what is happening there? So we're almost up on time in my discussion uh, with Deborah Amos, but let me, uh, I wanted to ask you sort of a journalism question here. I mean, this has been a long, well, for you, it's been a very a long period of unbroken coverage of disaster. Yes. And, and, I, and I think about disaster very broadly. So I include state violence and war and, dis and disease all in there because really they expose many of the same things, which is political dysfunction and social vulnerability. So I wanted to ask you about how journalists have been taking care in this time and maybe even how you do when you do your work and because of, I think to do it well, you have to develop relationships with people, but of course that means there's vulnerability and, and sort of trauma, secondary trauma that goes on. And this has been going on with COVID as well. The journalists who've been covering COVID throughout this period, I think have been suffering. I wonder how you think about that issue. I do think about it. Um, and I think part of my, um, secret uh, 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 wishes is to go see the torture um, uh, people who do therapy is to say, should I be doing something? Um, look, for, for a long time, I had a partner, he, he died a couple of years ago, but I had a partner who did what I do. And so at the end of the day, I had somebody to talk to all the time. Um, and that is helpful. You know, all PTSD therapy is based on talking therapy. You need to talk it out. Um, here, there's a couple of us who do this kind of work and we're called the atrocity contingent. Um, 
and we talk about it. Um, and sometimes I find that my fellows who do poetry or their musicologists are a little uncomfortable with us. But I think that that's what we've all learned how to do. You must talk about it um, because that's how you process it. Um, NPR once did a very, um, very healthy um, uh, session all day on PTSD. And the, the trainer said to us, look, reporters have it easier because they have to make a narrative out of it every night. Photographers have it the worst because they don't. Uh, but that means you have to watch out for your translators because that's not what they're doing. And I think there's something to that, that when you have to take all the information you gather in a day and make a narrative out of it, um, you process it. Um, and, you know, I, I was so aware of all of the nurses who were suffering um, during COVID. And I thought, well, they don't do that either. Um, they they don't make a narrative out of it at the end of the day. They I hope that they have partners family members, friends, that they can they can tell their stories that day because it really does help. You need to tell those stories. I take to Twitter now. I, you know, I that's how I make a narrative out of things or Instagram or, you know, if I go to a uh, if I go to the train station, I make sure I take pictures and I and I post it. That helps. That really does help. You feel like at least you're doing something. Let me remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although as we're moving towards the 500th episode, you can catch COVID calls kind of night and day. My next call will be with public health historian Christos Linteros. So that's going to be at noon UK time, 9 p.m. Korea time today, March 9th. And I want to thank my guest, Deborah Amos, for your work generally, which is amazing, and also for taking the time today to talk about what you're working on now and Ukraine and COVID. Really appreciate Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. Stay healthy, everyone, and we will see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.